Welcome to Fringe, the modern insurgent's very own podcast on groups laying on the fringe of our societies, from gangs to hooligans and cults, and many more. Deadheads are a devoted community of followers who passionately embrace the music and ethos of the Grateful Dead. Formed in the 1960s, they were captivated by the band's psychedelic rock and improvisational jams. This all led to a counterculture revival, where deadheads were known for their nomadic lifestyle, traveling from concert to concert, tied together by a shared love for the band. However, their intense dedication and communal nature have led to certain accusations of cult-like behavior, and many claim they are the first group who have cult fans. So that's what we're going to kind of be getting into today. And we've got Pat Pearson on, who you might know from one of our Atlas Analysis episodes about the Nation of Islam. If you don't, go give it a listen. And then once you've listened to the intro for it, sign up for the Patreon for the full episode. So welcome, Pat. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. I'm very excited to be talking about the dead. Certainly going to be an interesting one today. Oh, yeah. So we'll kick it off with why why are you on the podcast about the dead why are you an expert for the dead yeah so um they've act, the group has been you know a really big um part of my life ever since i was a kid so um both of my parents but in particular my dad um saw them a bunch back in the day you know starting they started going to shows in the 80s and um, so I, I grew up listening to uh, Grateful Dead bootleg tapes on on road trips. And, you know, even to this day, they really uh, kind of influenced my music taste. And um, yeah, also just the growing up, um, I think that th- that influence rubbed off on me beyond just kind of a, a musical level like also like we were talking you were talking about in the intro there um the ethos and the kind of mentality that is amongst deadheads definitely um spread to my parents and really kind of um i guess they passed that down to me as well and a lot of the a lot of those ideals so yeah no they've kind of been uh just in my in my periphery my whole life um and yeah it's i i was actually able to see dead and company which is a spin-off group uh including uh well a a few of the original members who are still alive uh, on their last tour just a few weeks ago in saratoga springs new york and that was a that was an incredible concert and i mean a really special experience beyond just the music itself you know you could really it was an atmosphere unlike any other i've ever really been in you know just this incredible sense of uh really incredible sense of community and you know it, it really does feel when when you're seeing that band like the audience and the band are kind of one one organism so before we get into say deadheads and the cult following surrounding them let's let's kind of gloss over the band themselves can you give me a little bit of the history of them and how how they're in the position they were 
Yeah. So uh, the Grateful Dead are a rock band formed in the Bay Area in 1965. Uh, initially, a bunch of the members met playing in a band called Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions. Um, th those members being Jerry Garcia, the lead guitarist and lead singer, Bob Weir, um, the the rhythm guitarist, and uh, Ron Pigpen. Uh, as he's known, which which was the band's first keyboardist. Um, and so, yeah, they formed initially in, in 1965. They initially used the name The Warlocks um, and played around SF and basically began to gain a bit of a bit of a cult following there. And keep in mind, you know, this is in, in the middle of the 60s, right as the hippie movement is starting to go. And geographically you know they, they're in they were in kind of in the perfect spot because um they were adjacent to a lot of circles that were able to kind of propel them into what what, what they eventually became and cemented them as this hugely important cultural force and, and we'll get into some of those some of those individuals and some of those groups later um but yeah, so initially they kind of became known for playing uh, a really unique combination of rock, blues, folk, jazz, and psychedelic rock that became uh, kind of the the band's signature sound. Um, and but what what really made them special is, like you briefly mentioned in the intro they would go on these long improvised jam sections um so you know in the middle of songs they would start you know the drummers and the bass um would start you know playing these repetitive loops and over top you know different di some of the the different musicians would swap in and start you know improvising and they, this is kind of what became their signature thing and, you know, during those jams, they would morph one song into another song um, and really take, you know, what people were doing at the time in, with music, especially in in uh, in America, and take it to this whole new level. And, you know, the, those jam sections were really, really um, super technically um, technically advanced and complicated but they at the same time you know what what kind of made it special is that every single show then became unique um so you know you would one show wouldn't be like the next so the band's fans as they began to develop this cult fan base started recording all of the shows and and trading those trading those tapes with one another and we'll get into that more later but that became a, a really core part of um the the deadhead culture is this practice of trading tapes um so yeah that's kind of where they got their start and um you you begin to see how it it developed and in, into what it became it's definitely a really interesting beginning for the group mm -hmm. so that the cult following that started being built up in the san francisco scene how did that develop into kind of what is known today as the deadhead movement yeah so um as the band kind of play played shows 
in uh in and around the bay area and began to tour in the mid 60s you know initially their their following was pretty much limited to the the bay area but because that was such a cultural hub at the time they began to make connections with lots of other figures that started to kind of spread their influence so for example you know they the members of the dead all lived in a house together at the corner of Haight and Ashbury, which for those of you who are unaware is kind of considered the um, gravitational center, if you will, of hippie culture in, in the sixties in the States. And so, yeah, as they began gigging more and, and starting to tour that following spread outside of, outside of San Francisco and they started to gain a following on the West Coast and then nationally. So the as the ba band began to tour more and more, uh, then they began to really develop the characteristics that turned them uh, turned them into, you know, the really revolutionary kind of band that they became. So, yeah, in, in the 70s is when they really began to tour constantly. Um, and that's when people began to start following them around the ca the country and so in 1971 i believe is when the the term deadhead was coined um but but by this time you know the 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 fans weren't necessarily around for that initial uh that initial hippie movement so by then it's starting to become detached from just this uh, this just you know one of these hippie bands as and become its own thing really um and so in 1969 they were they played Woodstock which was a which was a really big moment for the band um and again it was one of these times where they were they had all of this um that they kind of came in contact with a lot of other really important cultural figures at the time. And so, for example, you know, that was one time where they they played with a lot of artists who in the future became kind of adjacent to the band, like such as like Bob Dylan and Jefferson Airplane and the band and whatnot. So, um, yeah, they just kind of they, they really came out at the at the perfect time. Right. Like. They, and they not only like in terms of the time period that they came up, but also where. So again, you know, the, the fact that they were in in San Francisco for for this hugely kind of this huge like cultural shift that happened in the '60s um, was was really really critical for the band. I think it's crazy how quick things like that started to grow out of the 60s mm -hmm. into the 70s as like yeah as you mentioned quite a few of the other band or like bob dylan and uh, jefferson airplane there are mm -hmm. quite a few kind of like meteoric rises with some of the fan groups so some people might be listening to this thinking why are the deadheads on this podcast so why why do you think they are important in the world of fringe culture yeah so i didn't even know who they were. Yeah, so I think that, you know, it, it's funny because if you ask a lot of deadheads, I don't think they see themselves necessarily in the same way that, you know, a group like, say, people who are into punk or whatever, 
would would classify themselves where it's an intentional kind of rebellion against society but it's very the the culture that the deadheads have is one that is very you know anti anti-authority very egalitarian um very free-spirited you know kind of anti-conformity it, it really is this kind of attempt to gain a sense of freedom and community for people who look around and don't see that in in the world and i think that's what the appeal is for a lot of people and that's why uh people became so dedicated and they were able to really gain this this kind of cult following um but but I don't think it's just, you know, you can't really understand deadheads in, in the traditional sense of like like a fandom, like we might consider um, some musician, some popular musicians today to have. It, it really goes beyond that into a community and almost like a nation in a sense, you know, these are people who attach their their personal identities onto onto this thing beyond just a, a service level. It's not. um it isn't just about watching the band. In fact, Bob Dylan said that, quote, with the dead, the audience is a part of the band. They might as well be on stage. Um, and I think that really exemplifies kind of what makes them makes them so special is that it isn't it, it's not a it's not a spectator sport for them. Um, and it's not just one. It's not it doesn't have just one side. Right. We're, like it's not just about the music. Uh, and we'll go more into some of the the practices and the rituals of deadheads later but yeah there's it, it becomes kind of they, they literally have a small city following them around on tour um and so but but i think that um especially at the time uh in the 60s and 70s a lot of the initial appeal uh, that the dead had for people is is it was kind of a an opportunity to not only rebel but to reject um all of the things that were being forced onto them at the time you know like for example if you think about um how like the the political context at the time with um Nixon and the anti-war movement and everything it it really um was under this very very political backdrop and um i think that a lot of the people growing up at that time and seeing all that all those things happening were looking for an al an alternative um and so they they really found it in this this band that advocated this message of peace and freedom when the the politicians at the time were frankly not not concerned with those things at all mm. so why do you think this group and their fans get called a cult I, like so i think when we talk about cults when we talk about uh cult following it, there's negative connotations to that why do you think this group gets painted with connotations like that well, I think it's because their their followers are just so dedicated, unlike anyone else. Uh, there there isn't really e even with other you know other similar bands like given a modern example like say Fish, um, 
the 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 level of following that they had at their peak was just unprecedented and um people literally gave up every single like they, they, they gave up their own personal comfort uh in order to f- follow the band around and adopt this lifestyle because that that freedom was so intoxicating um and so but but i think the reason as to why the like i i would personally argue that a lot of the negative kind of and again maybe i'm biased but a lot of the negative associations that people had of the grateful dead that it was you know a bunch of you know drugged up hippies just wandering around the country not doing anything uh it it really comes from again like it's because ultimately they're rebelling against the political establishment at the time um and as as we know um the the u.s government was actively like the the hippies were considered like a political enemy uh especially in regards to their involvement in the uh in activism against the vietnam war um and that's something that the the dead and their fans were very very active in and you know since then they've been active in other political struggles like for example in the 80s dealing with the aids crisis and and even today you know bob weir is going on stage every night this tour and talking about uh a lot of the laws being passed in certain states uh regarding uh trans rights and so you know i think a lot of that that those kind of negative connotations that the band has have a lot to do with um how they were like a political enemy at the time and therefore uh the government and the mainstream media portrayed them in a certain way in order to in order to demonize that group um so yeah i think that's where a lot of that comes from and and the other thing to consider too is you know a cult to to call to call a group a cult you kind of have to have um a you have to have a leader in uh, who uh power is centered in i don't think that's really the case with the dead and their fans like he's um, normally shagging everyone's wives as well yeah (laughs) yeah we'll we'll go into there actually is um there are some dead fans that literally worship jerry um but we'll go into that later but for the most part again like like i've been saying it's really kind of this um the the group and the audience are kind of on the same plane and are you know it's it's they're they they need each other just as much as you know the the band needed their fans um or the, yeah, the band needs their fans just as much as the fans need the band, right? It's not a, I don't, I don't think the, there's much power being, being held um, in that place. But yeah, no, I, I would uh, trace a lot of those kind of associations to uh, the, the adverse reaction that some of the more conservative members of the public had um, to some of the bands, you know, practices surrounding like sex and drugs. Hmm. and their politics and whatnot so now that we've mentioned it i want to get into the juicy stuff i want to talk about rituals symbols traditions and i want to kick it off lsd 
psychedelics let's talk about it okay let's dig in so we're gonna have to actually go back a little let's i'm I'm gonna provide a brief history of of acid for those who are unaware so yeah lsd was actually first synthesized by a swiss chemist named albert hoffman in 1938 and so uh at this time you know the drug well obviously until um until the 60s people the the drug didn't really have any like any cultural value but it started being produced in 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 switzerland um it with uh initially with the hope that it would be used in a, in a psych- psychiatric context and so the cia actually found out about the properties of um lsd and how it uh, yeah it was it had this uh, psychoactive potential, uh, and they began. They they were the first ones to bring it over to the United States, um, and then they started what is is known as the MK Ultra program. So I'm sure plenty of people are familiar with it, but for those who aren't, that was a program where the CIA through um, hospitals and universities and whatnot. Um, tested tested lsd on um on people and uh to, to in order to see any potential um in order to investigate its qualities and you know one, one of the things that they were looking for is if it could be used for mind control purposes so it's kind of some some wacky stuff there but it to create the- some really oh. interesting characters oh yeah and so uh one um in in the Bay Area, um, there was this guy Ken Casey, and he was working in a veterans hospital at the time. And he ended up um, in the early '60s. He was uh, introduced to the MK Ultra program as a as a facilitator of it, actually, because he was working at this hospital. And so he saw the effects of LSD and went, "Huh, this is interesting," and decided to start um, start making it himself. And so, yeah, he set up this um, this lab and then he began traveling around with a group called the Merry Pranksters uh, throughout the 60s, spreading spreading and kind of popularizing acid around the United States. And in doing so, he came in contact with a lot of um, the figures of both the, the, the previous decades beat poet movement, um, as well as early early hippies um and so yeah the the Casey and the merry pranksters are kind of uh really well known yeah in the context of, of guys like yeah hunter s thompson um and uh neil cassidy kind of those those sorts of figures uh and that's but you know those are figure those are guys that really predate um the the movement in the 60s that we're talking about but still display a lot of the ethos that we would come to see later and so, yeah, so as he um, as he traveled around and, and spread this stuff, eventually um, he, he bought a house back just outside of um, San Francisco. And throughout 1965 and 1967, he held a series of events called the acid tests. And this is when the Grateful Dead come into play. So the acid tests were a bunch of parties that they held all over uh, the West Coast that where yeah casey and the and the merry pranksters distributed lsd uh to a lot of the figures that would eventually become mainstays of the of the hippie movement and so they the the 
Grateful Dead, this is how they they met Ken Casey, who ended up supplying them with their LSD. Um, and the, the Dead basically became kind of the acid test's house band, if you will, you know. Um, and that at that time, that's when that's how um drug use was kind of introduced to to these shows and became an integral part of it. Um and meanwhile, one of the dead's other um the 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 guy who was actually making LSD for for the dead um and and Ken Casey at this time was a guy cut named Osley Bear Stanley. Um so he was he he later became the dead's uh sound engineer, but he initially started out as yeah, their drug dealer. And he was like really the first one in um in North America to set up a a major major LSD lab. Um and so his his acid kind of became the standard for uh for the West Coast. And yeah, he was he was a really, really big player in that. Um and so yeah, both um both uh Ken Casey and Osley Stanley were these very very important figures uh kind of adjacent to the dead that sort of introduced them to this um to acid and then that became kind of a crucial part of the culture surrounding the grateful dead i find the clandestine chemist community so interesting Mm -hmm. like it's got such a deep history and has spouted so many kind of different I mean, yeah. religions for one and various other movements. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. When I first started like talk like researching it, I didn't realize how fucking extensive it was. Man. Yes. Yeah. Like, like the, the, the MK Ultra stuff, it's like what? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's all like this. It's a massive circle. But that's what makes it so interesting, right? Is they just they came at the perfect time and in the perfect place and they just happened to find themselves in these situations and with these other people that really made them into what they are right like the Mm. dead are not a standalone entity by any means they were just the you know the guys playing the instruments um and they're really a product of this larger kind of uh cultural shift that was happening at the time you know and it's it's still a movement that exists today i've met Mm. people around the world like while i've been traveling like americans that are acid fairies that travel around the world and give acid to random people. And I class that as like a modern kind of variation of the same movement. It's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, no, it is incredible how the, the staying power that a lot of these, you know, practices and ideas have had, like the the fact that, you know, people can still find relevance today in, you know, these the the both like the dead's music and the ideas that they um the ideas that they propagated uh i i think really goes to show just how that they were touching on something that was extremely you know touching to a certain element of kind of the human experience that was really and is still really important to people The Modern Insurgent is completely independent. If you want to support our work and help boost independent journalism, please consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash modern insurgent. 
Thank you very much. So now we've touched on psychedelics. What are the other notable kind of rituals and traditions that are so infamous for deadheads? Yeah, so um, again, con considering that for the past, well, for the entirety of the dead's career from 1965 until 1995, they had this, you know, rabid fan base following them around. But like I mentioned earlier, it basically became a, a small city that was going with them on tour. And so as as that developed, there, there was sort of like a, an economy that came with it. So one of the things that I, that I briefly touched on earlier was bootlegging and, and tape trading. So um, as even even at the beginning of the band, uh, fans started started taping, taping their live performances because each and every one was unique. Um, and so. Th that quickly became turned into this practice where uh you know bootleggers and and fans would would be would trade tapes with one another and it was very important that it's trading and not buying and selling no money was ever supposed to exchange hands it was all about the practice of you know keeping it as this you know kind of grassroots uh like diy thing before you know the that really became like a like a punk thing or whatever um and so, yeah, like that was a huge, huge thing. And not only as opposed to a lot of bands that discouraged the the recording of their performances for copyright reasons, the band actually encouraged it. And they set up a special um, bootlegger section where, you know, there would be uh, tons of people with microphones recording into the um recording the band they would even the, their sound engineers would even toss out toss out cables cables so that they could get uh, audio directly from the soundboard and so yeah that became a really kind of crucial thing because then fans could enjoy the band's performances outside of their tours and the, yeah the one of the important things to understand is uh that the the, the dead are not a um they're not a studio band. They're a live band. That's what they've always been known for. They don't, they, their, their records are great, but when they really shine is live. And uh, so that's kind of been why their performances are so special. It's because they're, yeah, each and every one is unique because they have this improvisational element. Um, so yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the Deadheads practices kind of revolve around that. Uh, other kind of elements of that economy would be, um, in in the the seventies, I believe, uh, fans started realizing that outside of shows, they could set up um, like vending booths and stuff. And so, uh, so if you go if you go to a Grateful Dead show, uh, before the show, you'll have in in the parking lot, um, there will be people you know beyond just thousands of people tailgating, like you know. When, when I was seeing that this is still a practice that continues to this day. Uh, and when I saw them a few weeks ago, it was several parking lots full of people hours, hours before the show, you know, partying and drinking and doing, doing drugs. And, but, but one of the key things is, yeah, this practice of vending. So people sell, you know, clothing, food, jewelry, uh, drugs, all kinds of stuff. And the kind of central area um, where, where people 
sell, sell these goods is, is called Shakedown Street, named after one of the dead songs. Uh, but but again, it, it's kind of it's not like a it's not like a cat. It's not an enterprise thing. You know, th this was this began to happen so that um, that deadheads could financially support themselves to go follow them around on tour. You know, it it came out of necessity. And it's a very kind of um, uh, laissez faire um, kind of environment. Right. You, you literally have like people walking up and down the the aisles of shakedown street going you know acid for sale shrooms for sale whatever uh yeah yeah you have vendors selling all kinds of shit uh and, there are some you know, bargains to be found yes yeah yeah it's very yeah it, it, and it's all about um creating this kind of self-sustaining thing where people are able to um like live basically live within this within this community you know they're able to feed themselves they're able to clothe themselves all this stuff um and so yeah that became kind of a really key key element of the the culture surrounding the band um but yeah continuing on with that kind of laissez-faire um but but in an, in an, in an almost anti-capitalist anti-like corporatist way one other thing that really has happened a lot um throughout the band's career is the practice of showing up like a lot of fans would would show up to shows not having tickets um and so you know for example what what you'll see at a lot of dead shows is fans going up holding up signs saying i need a miracle which which means that they need a ticket hoping that someone will just gift it to them and that's a thing that happens um you know while i was standing in line i saw someone yeah, walking up and down holding a sign, someone called them over and gave them a ticket. Like, yeah, it's just it's about the that that kind of I think is a pretty you know clear representation of where the uh what what the attitude that people have towards um the, this idea that there needs to be uh this kind of again like an anti transactional kind of thing um and so the but oftentimes yeah a lot, when lots of people would show up show out with tickets in the early days you know they would just kind of let them hang out in the parking lot listen in from the band but in some later shows when the crowds became so in, insane there would be situations where you know people would crash the gates and stuff like for example my, my dad's told me one story where he was at a show one time and there's there's a guy running they're, they're waiting at the gates to get in there's a guy that's running through and there's a bunch of security guards chasing him and the crowd just opens up uh so that he can get through and by the time the security guards are uh get to the crowd they it just swallows him and they completely lose him so you know again that kind of shows like what um what the attitude is around um like how important it's about the music it's not about you know th this transactional thing um so yeah but yeah beyond that one of the other kind of really important uh elements of the band is um there, there's a bunch of different subgroups within deadheads so for example you've got a group called the wharf rats who are deadheads that uh like come together because they don't they choose to not use drugs or alcohol um and you know it, it's kind of like a support system sort of like a not 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 
exactly like an you know and something like Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever, uh, but but kind of in that sort of vein where you know they help each other stay stay sober because for whatever reason they're choosing not to use drugs even though that's such a big part of the culture, uh, and another another group that is a really um, kind of infamous within the dead that I, I I touched on briefly earlier, but they're a group called the Spinners, and uh, basically they're known for going to shows and, and spinning the spinning during during songs and but there's kind of a a darker side to it not well not necessarily a darker side but a you know cultish side so uh they're also known initially they were known as the uh, church of ultimate devotion so it was uh this guy joseph leon uh that that would have yeah this this usually a large group of women with him uh and they would oh yeah, yeah. And they so they like I mentioned earlier, they worshiped Jerry Garcia, the the lead guitarist and singer. They would sit they would spin during his songs and dance around um and but but during there were some songs written by Jerry, but there's also some songs written by Bob Weir, the other guitarist. Um and they they were known for they they would sit down during the songs that weren't written by Jerry. Um <laughs> There, yeah, anti anti Jerry, but yes, like um, there there's the information on them is kind of they're a very cryptic group. Like they're they're sort of known like the a lot of deadheads think that they're weird, so that <laughs> says a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, like kind of again, it it sort of is to the best of my understanding, a sort of spiritual spiritual practice that they had where, yeah, they're literally, they kind of consider um, that Jerry is some sort of like avatar and uh, like, that you know, you, you can kind of correlate what they're doing similar to what like, it's what like Sufi, like, um, uh, like Sufi, Sufiists uh, mm. do with, with their spinning. Uh, I have heard that they're they're inspired they were inspired by them. Uh, so yeah, no, it has this very spiritual aspect. And I think that also remains true for a lot of deadheads, but in that case, it might be a little more literal. Um, but yeah, uh, beyond that, you know, I think that the band's iconography and kind of symbolism has also become really um really important and influential. Like they really influenced th their posters and um, you know, t-shirts and merchandise and, and logos and everything really influence what we consider to be like hippie art today. Like a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the motifs and stuff that they used became like mainstays in hippie art. And I think that, you know, it's kind of interesting because a lot of the kind of like central theme of the dad's music, I, at least for me, is kind of this like dualist I ideas and this like contrasting of like it, it's literally in the name the grateful dead like it kind of seems like a it's it's sort of a um sort of a contradiction and yeah for example like you know they've got the the, the skull and the roses uh iconography that's that's really famous and again it's it's this pattern of this thing of like life and death so i think it's a lot like deeper and more maybe more philosophical than than it may seem on the surface level but yeah no i think the iconography of the band is like really important as well did the deadhead culture change over the decades yeah so um yeah there was a lot of in the early days again it took a while for the dead to kind of adopt a lot of the things that be eventually became a key part of their um 
the their their live shows and their kind of touring schedule and stuff so for example like um in in the 70s um Os, osley mosley or osley sanley sorry um the, the guy who <laughs> we talked about earlier who who made all that made all the lsd for the band and ken casey um he was the the band's sound engineer at the time and so he developed this thing called the wall of sound which was a massive um which is a massive sound system that the band would tour around with that literally you know covered the entire back of the stage um and it was incredibly intricate and detailed and provided this this really incredible kind of um audio quality that other bands didn't really have and it really yeah took took the band and their because everything about their music is about going taking it taking music beyond what what it is and kind of reimagining things into what they could be and yeah the things that they do are really beyond what a lot of other mu musicians can even kind of comprehend and so they needed a they needed a sound system to be able to replicate that for, so for so, so yeah um throughout the 70s they toured around with this massive this massive massive sound system that like pretty much in terms of its interest intricacy is literally unparalleled um that was one really important development uh and yeah there was like cer there's certain uh aspects of their show like for example um there there's a section that there's um the the one song well song uh that they play every single show and they have been doing so i think since the early 80s it's called drums in space so it's this it's this section where uh, first off, it's an improvisational because that has two drummers, um, and the rest of the band walks off stage, and the two drummers have a like yeah an improvisational kind of drum battle thing, and then it goes into this the the, the space section, which is um, you know very kind of uh, this this like psychedelic ambient kind of um, again improvised improvised section uh that's they, they use they use synthesizers and uh, uh like the mickey hart one of the drummers he has this incredible instrument that you know i've never seen anywhere else where he's got these uh like this this huge um these long strings that they they have like pieces of sand uh bouncing over and stuff and it, it's incredible and he makes these yeah kind of ethereal spacey sounds with it so that's one uh kind of thing development that came with time um but yeah as the as the band you know kept on touring and building a following eventually they did reach a certain level of uh mainstream success so um in the sorry let me just find um, so yeah, in the mid eighties, um, the band, again, they, they hadn't really had, they aren't, a they aren't an album band. They really hadn't really had any hits, but they had one hit in the mid eighties called touch of gray. Um, that, that actually did, you know, get serious radio play and brought a lot, the dead, a lot of mainstream attention really widened their audience. So, um, yeah, in about 1986, uh, the, the show started getting a lot bigger and a lot of, you know, older fans who would kind of look down on some of the newer fans because they thought that they were, 
causing problems and kind of ruining the the special thing that they had going on. And so, yeah, in the late eighties and the early nineties, there actually were a, were a series of, um, there was a series of like small riots and stuff that, that happened. Um, the most, the most famous of which happening at a show in uh, Deer Creek in 1995, I believe. Um, and so, yeah, like the, the, but, but by that time, right. A lot of the people who are around in the sixties to watch them come up and understood the, the cultural, the, the place where they came from weren't necessarily around anymore or they were like of an older generation and a lot of the fans hadn't were, weren't even necessarily born yet um so yeah no there was a lot of kind of changes that happened over the years but but ultimately i think that um for, for the for the most part the band's kind of appeal remained the same throughout the course of their career it's incredible like how I know we've said it already, but how long it goes on for? Like, like there's so much in this story. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. What a long, strange trip it's been. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lyric. <laughs> yeah. No, it's um, and I think it's it's it it isn't over. Even though uh, the members are currently on their final tour together, um. You know, people are going to still because the, the, they are arguably the best catalog band in the history of music, you know, in terms of the fact that, you know, can't like dozens of people have recorded almost every single one of their shows uh, with the exception of a handful at the beginning. Um, you can and, and now with the with, you know, the Internet, all that stuff is online and anyone can go in and be able to enjoy those. And I think that's kind of um yeah even though it's not the the tape trading days of old where it was this kind of you know grassroots underground thing this underground network you know it's still in the spirit of you know being able to spread spread the band's music in a way that doesn't isn't inhibited by people's money right like yeah you see tapes going up of like rare shows and stuff for hundreds of dollars on ebay and stuff but generally speaking, you know, you, you can find recordings online and anyone's able to go back and enjoy them and explore them. And and the fact is, you know, there there isn't enough time in the world to listen to all of their all of all of the different versions of songs. And but that's what makes it so special. Is every single show is unique. Um, and there's these there's these magical moments in them that they 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 couldn't even replicate if they tried. It's all about the um you know what's what's coming in the moment and the the kind of the dynamic between the band and the audience um and so yeah i think that's kind of what makes it special and it's been able to stay fresh for all of these years when meanwhile you know you've seen a lot of the other bands and artists of the area era kind of go stale and release a lot of uh a lot of crap <laughs> certainly so in what ways do you think the Grateful Dead's music and then the Deadhead community intersected with other social or political movements at the time? Yeah, so um, first off, like I think that um, they the, the Dead are like this. They're really, in my opinion, 
although they're kind of unlikely heroes in this sense, they really were kind of the center of gravity uh, of a lot of movements in and around the 60s. So, you know, for example, like we talked about earlier with, um, you know, Ken Casey and the Merry Pranksters and the Beatniks, uh, they kind of transitioned a lot of those ideals that were um, pioneered and first considered by the beat poets in the 50s who felt like they were um subject to this you know hyper conformist culture and they were trying to escape that um they adopted those those ideals and were able to kind of spread them spread them out um and did so in a way that was really palatable for a lot of people and that's kind of what led to the hippie movement becoming the you know massive force that it was and so and that you know directly tra translated into political change like uh th th again like like i mentioned before they were very th them and their fans were very active in the um anti-vietnam war uh movement and had a had a big role to play in in a lot of protests uh that happened at the time like like deadheads were you know were present at uh and involved in a lot of a lot of activist um activist action uh against the war and so yeah i think that a lot of that it was inspired by the ethos of of peace and freedom and love for one another um that that the dead spread with their music uh and and the and the shows that uh, sorry and the and the community surrounding the band was able to kind of give people a, a bit of a template for realizing oh there, there is an alternative to um the, the way that things are right so like that's why it didn't just appeal to you know hippies in the nsf in the 60s it also appealed to people like from you know middle class suburban backgrounds who grew up in a later time because they were they were looking for the same thing they were looking for a taste of freedom um and so that's why they had all of this um yeah this this huge cultural force and they really outlap excuse me they outlasted the the hippie movement you know in, in the 70s as we know with the um, you know, the, with the death of, um, the death of JFK and, uh, the Manson family murders and also, yeah, the, also the death of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, as those, a lot of the excitement, um, that happened with this cultural shift in the late sixties kind of died out, the dead just became more and more popular. So, you know, even though the initial thing that they were a part of no longer really was around, their staying power was still there. And it showed that, you know, they're, even though they were this product of this very specific kind of uh, moment in time, the, the things as to which they were touching at were a lot deeper than that. Hmm. My next question was going to be about the legacy, but I don't think that can sum it up any better than that. Like yeah that, well that last sentence nails it so incredibly like they have outlasted the thing that they began to do it's, it's yeah, almost and, incredible 
Well, and not only that, but I think that they were able to maintain this even though they never really became like I even despite their success in the 80s, I don't think they you could ever really call them a mainstream act because the way that people consume their music is not like they're not the kind of band that you can just pop, you know, listen to passively on the radio. Like again, to really enjoy their music, you, you got to give it the time. Uh, well, you know, ideally you'd be able to see them live and really immerse yourself in that experience. But even if you do decide to go back and listen to bootleg recordings of old shows, you've got to give it the time and really listen to what they're doing because it's incredibly intricate and complex. And I think it's fundamentally um, incompatible to the the corporate the corporate music industry. And that's why they never really had many hits. Um, and they, but they also, it's because they really care. They, they didn't care about having hits. They cared about their fan base. You know, they never, they never turn their backs on them. And uh, I, I think that's really, really incredible. Uh, even though, you know, they were, they've basically sold, sold out every single show that they played from like the early seventies on. Um and that they were touring constantly the whole, well, not vir virtually constantly the whole time. So then that's a pretty hard, that's a pretty incredible feat that really not many others, well, if anyone else has been able to accomplish. Um, but yeah, I, I think that for that reason, uh, that's kind of why they're still held in such high regard is because, you know, they, they didn't sell out. Um, and not only that, they still had this, uh, they had this like massive influence on music and culture. You know, they, they spawned an entire like genre of music with jam bands. So yeah, for example, today there's bands like, there's bands like Fish and, uh, you know, Billy Strings is, is a newer, newer act that's kind of following in their, following in their footsteps. Um, and all, yeah, all kinds of groups that, do take take what the dead did and the, the format that the dead use and make it their own thing um and so i i think it's you know but beyond just jam bands like they've influenced you know the, the, their influence has been immense right even from bands in the um in the 60s to right now um on in in dead and company the the current group that's touring with with original members um on on their on their final tour uh john mayer is is filling in for for jerry garcia because garcia died in 1995 um and at, at that point the band split up and since then they've been doing uh kind of spin-off groups and stuff uh but yeah so J john mayer you know a modern po popular artist is is um you know kind of standing in for jerry and I, I I mean, it, it's pretty incredible to me that uh, people care enough to, um, you know, still try and do do the music justice, right? And you know, it's not just just John. I mean, like, there's tons of people who play um, playing Grateful Dead tribute bands uh, and, and are still like playing and enjoying their music. And I don't think that's ever going to really change because again, like I think they touched, they were able to touch on something very fundamental to the human spirit. Um, but yeah, beyond that, like the, the cultural impact that they've had is also huge, like in, in art and fashion, um, the, the 
popular they're really responsible for the popularization of lsd in north america uh so there's that and they really just brought music to a whole new level it, it they took took what what people thought was possible on musical instruments and brought it beyond what you know anyone could have really imagined at the time and i think no one's since really been able to take it to that to that level again and i mean but but it's definitely opened up the the possibilities of well not only what music can be but you know what what life can be what community can mean and all of these things like they they did something that was so incredible in so many ways that it's it's virtually impossible to replicate Hmm. it's honestly incredible like the lasting legacy that it's had yeah yeah like i can't even think of another like musical group slash fan base that could make it onto a podcast like this mm -hmm. yeah like that that like that's how kind of wide reaching it is that it can make it onto things that are focused on completely different ideas really yeah yeah but that's because it's so multifaceted right it's not just the music it's this kind of you know culmination of of culture and music and politics and uh you know and, and drugs and spirituality and it, it, that you know provides this creates this extremely you know cathartic thing for people uh and you know it, it's but again i think that it kind of just, it wasn't forced. It wasn't manufactured. It just happened. Like it, it just, this band came at the perfect time and was able to capture the kind of, um, the, the spirit of the moment and, and bring that with them. And, you know, with that, all of these, all these people followed along. And I think that's pretty incredible. Hmm. And that's actually a challenge for any listeners. If you can think of any other music groups that could fit something like this that we don't know about, let us know. Message us on yeah. Instagram. We're Great. always yeah. looking for new music groups that uh, have pretty mental fans. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, you know, I, I think that a lot of... One thing that when I was at the show, what I felt was very similar. So, you know, m my personal music interest revolves a lot around like punk and metal and stuff. And I think a lot of the things that attracted me to those genres initially are very similar to the things that attracted deadheads to, mm. to the Grateful Dead. Uh, you know, a, a sense of freedom, a sense of a, an ability to do something that was where, where you could, you know, you weren't constrained by uh the the structures around oneself uh by by the you know by money by rules <laughs> um and yeah just be like truly free and but but again it's in terms of scale uh th there really isn't anything that can nearly parallel it, it while still being like an underground mm. uh kind of movement and and still a um still something that that goes against the goes against the establishment hmm. like it's nowhere near the same scale but the only one i can think of that's kind of as cult cultish i guess is the the guys with clown masks juggalos yeah that's actually yeah. a good you know what 
That's really interesting. The juggalos and you know what? I would argue that there's a lot of similar. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities between juggalos and and deadheads in a sense. Mm. Like again, it's it's but but again, I think that speaks to the fact that people use music as this vehicle for community, you know, and, and you can trace that to punks, you can trace that to, you know, skinheads largely. Like there, there's a ton of different movements, but but the scale at which the dead was able to achieve that and the the cultural importance that they've had is just unparalleled, you know, and just the dedication, like um like you know you you have people who spent like decades following them around and that's all they that's all they did with their lives um and yeah to get someone to to give up the comforts of home and stability and you know any sort of financial um yeah financial well-being is is it just goes to show the the force that that had on people mm. I, I think everyone, anyone listening should go and watch one of the concerts live on YouTube, yeah. or not live on YouTube, but on YouTube mm-hmm. to see. I watched a few uh, just to kind of research what it was like to be there. And I couldn't recommend it more. Even if, even if a video on YouTube is levels above equivalent I've seen out there. So it's, yeah, I definitely recommend doing it. Yeah. Is there anything just the... else we need to add on? Yeah, no, I was just going to say like, yeah, I definitely recommend even if it's not necessarily your music per se, I, I think anyone can kind of appreciate what's being what what they do with their instruments, as well as you know, you, you can see if you're able to watch a video or even just listen, y- you get this sense of um, y- y- yeah, they're, they're able to convey a uh feeling of this like united feeling um where they're just completely in sync and in some of these incredible jams um that is is pretty pretty incredible um and yeah luckily now all everything basically everything's been digitized and you can go on youtube or spotify or wherever um and being able be able to find hundreds of shows uh and the, the cool thing is every single one is unique so you can spend you know literally your entire life digging through and finding these these special moments um and yeah it never really gets old it's it's been a pleasure to talk about them today and to have you on yeah well it, i never expected a group well. like this to be like this interesting no, it's really incredible. And there's all this, and there's, we only got to touch the tip of the iceberg today, right? Like there, there's tons of other resources out there. And um, yeah, I, I recommend anyone uh, who's curious to look into it more because it's, it, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Like the, the lore behind the band is incredible. The stories that they have are, you know, truly it's surreal. Like um yeah, so you know whether you're interested in their music or the history, I think there's something for everyone, right? Um, and so, yeah, no, I definitely, I, I couldn't recommend people looking into it more. Mm, definitely. So, thank you very much, Pat. It's been a pleasure to have you on. My pleasure. Yeah. Mm. So, everyone listening, if you don't already follow us, follow us at Modern Insurgent on Instagram, 
Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. And make sure you give us a rating on this podcast, wherever you listen to it, whether that's Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or if you're that one guy that listens to us on your watch, respect to you. Fair play. <laughs> um, thank you very much. See you next time. Saratoga Springs is a small town nestled in the Adirondack Mountains, famous for horse racing. But this weekend, June 17th and 18th, 2023, a crowd of deadheads roughly the size of its population has descended upon the upstate New York town to see Dead & Company, the final iteration of the Grateful Dead, one more time. 58 years after their formation and 28 after the death of frontman Jerry Garcia, the band is doing their last tour. Their fans have bittersweet feelings about the band's departure. While they may be sad to see them go, no one can deny the Dead had an incredible run. Real sad. I mean, I didn't get to go on a full tour. But, you know, maybe we'll come back. I'm walking down Shakedown Street, the epicenter of a small city that pops up in the parking lot at every single dead show. Surrounded by a sea of tie-dye, I'm witnessing something between a street party, a flea market, and a commune, unlike anything I've ever seen before. Even though it is early in the day and the show is still hours to come, the energy is lively and the lot, as it's known by deadheads, is packed. There are vendors selling everything from handmade clothes and food to weed and psychedelics. These vendors have long been a staple at dead shows, peddling their goods to sustain their nomadic lifestyles following the band around. Some have been doing so for decades, opting to dedicate everything to be a part of this unique community instead of settling down and having a stable, traditional life. It's a way of life, you know? People want to live their life some different way, and this is how I chose. So how many times have you guys seen the dead? No. There's no precise number that I could give you. About 130, probably, 140. I stopped counting after like 380. And do you know Do you know when the first show would have been? Englishtown, New Jersey, 1977. My first show was right here, Saratoga, June 18th, 1983. Hopped on the bus from time in 1981. He was a rat. Many fans say that the appeal of the Grateful Dead goes beyond the music. I like the laid-back music. I like mm-hmm. the people. It's definitely the people. They're different than... I mean, I was really young when I started getting into them, 14 and stuff. And, uh, it was just a different community of people that were listening to the dead and playing that music and whatnot then who were into like the Floyd crowd or the, the hard rock and just, yeah. so I sort of fell in with that. It's always been more about the scene than the music. I mean, I love the music and I love to dance. I'm a dancing crazy man, but just the scene. It was like a drug. For me, it was like cocaine or something. It was just like I had to go to the next show, whatever it fucking took. It was just a reaction to how I felt. I had to stay here. I wasn't going to leave no matter what happened. (laughs) And then when the tours would end, you know, you land somewhere like Eugene or the Bay Area. And you make do until the next tour. Right, because you got like three months until the next tour. Yeah. She eventually got a professional life. (laughs) I did. I went back to school and I did tours around school as much as I could. Yeah. 
I missed shows, but I saw shows, yeah. so it was all good. Lots of West Coast shows. If you live on the West Coast, there's a lot more shows. It just spreads a lot of like kind word, mm -hmm. and it makes you want to do you know good things. And being yeah. out here, just there's so many nice people. You know, you meet so many good people. And I mean, I definitely you know I look at everything in such a more positive way. Mm -hmm. You know, even just trying to do kind gestures to everyone. So we arrived here yesterday and I didn't know, like something felt off. It wasn't just the rain, because rain's rain and we stood in a long line. And normally you just brush that stuff off. I mean, I had a great time, but I only realized today when we arrived, we got out of the truck, we set up the canopy over the back of the pickup truck and pulled all Nancy stuff out, hung the banners. And then suddenly I just took a walk around and suddenly I realized, oh, your, your smile had just arrived. Like it just, it just, yeah. it just settles over you, and it's like, okay, this is this is how it's supposed to be. You know? Right. This is how our weekend should be lived every week. <laughs> The show put these fans' words into context. I attended both the Saturday and Sunday shows, and even though there was some bad weather and even worse lines, nothing could have put a damper on the mood. The band played two unique sets, as they always do, each easily passing the three-hour mark. Guitarist Bob Weir and drummer Mickey Hart, the remaining original members, did not let the fact that it's not 1972 anymore slow them down, and the newer members were hot on Weir and Hart's tracks. Accomplished musicians in their own right, guitarist John Mayer, bassist Otail Burbridge, keyboardist Jeff Cimenti, and second drummer Jay Lane held their own during the band's famously long and intricate improvised jams. Fans got to cash dead classics such as Sugary, Deal, Friend of the Devil, and Terrapin Station over the weekend, but the energy wasn't concentrated in the band. It spread through the audience and the entire amphitheater became a living organism. No matter where you were in the crowd of tens of thousands, you could feel the music. There were many generations of fans present. Some concert goers, such as myself, hadn't been able to catch the dead in one of their original iterations, while others got a special chance to relive the good old days with family and friends. Young children jumped around in bounce balloons alongside their deadhead parents. Despite massive crowds, there were no tensions between concert goers. Dancers moved freely around the crowd and joints even freer. magic is still here all these years after they started they've been touring for you know, I wouldn't be here years. if it wasn't yeah. I mean what would be the point yeah that guy right there in the tie-dye this guy right here that guy in the red shirt probably that guy and a woman in the purple shirt these people have been on doing this in their own way and we keep coming back because of them we keep coming back because we meet a new person. We keep right. coming back because, right? Each other. It's all because about the people. This. It's all about the people. And it's also about the music. And we do love the music. Wow. So, you know, John Mayer is a good guitar player. He's not Jerry. We didn't come here to see Jerry. I think it's changed a little bit. But overall, I think, like, if you can go to a venue like this and walk up to anybody and just start talking, hey, man, where are you from? Da, 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 da. Yeah. It's, it's still the same. It's just, there's nothing like it. You know, there's no band and no... There's no one else that's doing this. It's just a different kind of breed. The party continued after the show as concert goers gathered once again in the lot. Even though it's a wrap on the Dead's nearly 60 year long touring career for now, their legacy isn't going anywhere. As the band sings, the fields are full of dancing, full of singing and romancing, the music never stopped. 
This has been Patrick Pearson for The Modern Insurgent.